we're really surprised in a positive sense by how many good people there are already in systems. They you know, work very hard or dedicated to care a lot, but there's just nothing for them, no recognition, no you know, intrinsic reward in what they do. If you can do just small amount of things to try to empower them, excite them, and, and help upskill them, amazing things can happen. Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to introduce Sharath Jeevan. Sharath is founder and CEO of STAR, teacher-led movement which aims to address the learning crisis in developing countries by reigniting the spark in teachers and empowering them to become more committed, skilled and influential to improve teacher quality and influence the wider system. STIR is currently working with more than 12,000 teachers in 4,000 schools with an impact on more than half a million children in India and Uganda. Prior to founding STIR, Sharath founded Teaching Leaders, an innovative UK education non-profit. Well, thank you very much, Sharath, for taking the time today to speak to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the work that you're doing and some of the lessons and insights you've got on your journey. A good place to start might be if you just tell me a little bit about what you do at the moment and your vision for STIR. Um, what we're trying to do uh, with STIR is really address the, the learning crisis that's taking place in developing countries today. Um, over 250 million kids now are in school, which is remarkable, but not learning very much. And uh, we know what really makes the biggest difference to whether kids learn um, is the quality of their teachers. But if we you know, turn up at a, at a random school in India, Uganda, the country where the countries where STIR operates, one in four teachers is absent, less than, half, less than half the time is spent teaching, and even that is a very poor quality. Um, in Uganda, for example, almost 85% of teachers want to quit the profession uh, if they have the chance. So what's happened with this, I think, is that governments have tried all kinds of ever more ingenious, what are called carrots and sticks, to try to kind of motivate and keep teachers on, on track from... Now, in some states, we get biometrically fingerprinting teachers uh, as they enter school, all the way to trying you know, performance bonuses like bankers, for example. And you can guess kind of some of the results. These things don't really usually sustain, and they don't really usually te- motivate teachers to really want to teach well either. So when I set up STIR about three and a half years ago, we had a very different kind of idea, a different kind of vision. You know, really, rather than play around with carrots and sticks, how can we bring back the intrinsic motivation of teaching? Rather than uh, try and bring sort of externally driven reform, how can we bring a genuine groundswell of movement from within the teaching profession itself to solve this, this problem? And really, most fundamentally, how do we make teachers the solution to the learning crisis and not see them as the problem in the first place? Uh, so that's a bit about the philosophy of STIR. Uh, and why we set it up. That's great. It's a very uh, good way of looking at it, as you say, not making them the problem. And I guess tapping into, uh, I suppose, uh, a natural desire to teach well and to be, uh, I suppose, to be respected for what they do. No, very, very much. And I think all of us as human beings, we all um, um, you know, crave. Daniel Pink has written a lot about motivation, talks about these elements of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And as professionals, we want to feel in control of our 
innovation. We want to feel that we're getting better at it. We want to see how what we're doing is um, you know, links to some, some bigger mission or purpose as well. And I think what, what we're seeing in, say, a country like India, which has 8 million uh, teachers, is that you know, good people come into teaching, but they land in a school where all the pressure around them is pushing them downwards. Uh, it's saying things like, even if, what's the point of showing up, you'll get paid anyway. What's the point of, you know, mocking homework? No, no, parents are too scared to complain. And no matter how good we are as people, you know, that, that kind of pressure will always sort of pull us down. And we're trying to really turn that on its head and bring back a positive motivation and get teachers to um, almost re re rekindle their love for their craft and give them positive networks of, of peers that will reinforce their belief and, 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 and commitment as professionals. Clearly, there are organisation structures in schools which don't always lend themselves to, you know, to best practice in education. And to what extent, when you've looked at the problem, have you, you know, thought about trying to change the structures or, you know, working with the people within the structures and how that plays out? You know, we've made a call, I think, from a lot of learning over the last three and a half years since we set up STIR, that it's better to start with people first and that people will change structures over time. Um, I think too often, you know, even in this country, um, you know, as an education minister, your first temptation is to start playing around with structures. What happens if you change the curriculum or you um, change how something is assessed? Uh, and there's a great um, writer, as you call Pritchett, who talks about this idea of isomorphic mimicry. It's a wonderful term. And what he says is, you know, if you look at a PowerPoint, um, if you go to a, a government in Africa, for example, look at their website, everything looks beautifully done. Um, but the systems that are described in that nice PowerPoint don't actually work beneath them because the people are motivated to to deliver against those structures. So I think we've, we've said, let's really try and build a, a people-driven um, approach, a movement of people, of teachers, but also the, the officials around teachers at the very local levels all the way up to state and national levels who are committed to improving the quality of education, committed to improving learning, build them into a network and a movement and then empower them to gradually change structures right. and the confidence to do so. Right, that's interesting. Can you give me an example, uh, you know, a kind of a before and after of the best potential of change coming through from teachers who are motivated, I don't know, either in a school or a network, I don't know whether it's possible to do that because maybe some of these projects haven't been on the ground long enough but that might give a taste of, you know, what can be achieved. No, so I mean, we're seeing, for example, in some of our networks, um, that the, you know, the, the proportion of teachers who are attending school on time after engaging with this has gone up by four times, for example. Uh, we've seen that there's been a very big um, gain in the motivation levels of teachers. Uh, we've seen um, that about 90% of the teachers we work with have actually changed their practice, their behavior in the classroom, having engaged with, you know, with, with the STEM movement. And, we're, uh, we're doing a big uh, randomized control trial in, in India right now um, to, to look very rigorously at this, but our first assessment of learning levels showed that kids who are taught by teachers um, in, uh, with, with the STIR approach were seeing their learning improve almost twice as fast as, a, uh, as an equivalent uh, control group. But I think, you know, just moving us up the data for a second and, and telling a, a sort of individual story, one of the first teachers I met in, in India, in Delhi, was a lady called Dr. Indra, who was, um, uh, you know, I remember walking into a corridor, it was a very dusty day in Delhi, and the first thing that she said when I walked into her room was five more years. 
And I said, what do you mean five more years? And she said, five more years before I retire. And she'd basically given up on teaching and was really coasting through her last few years of, of, of being a professional. But she'd um, developed a really exciting innovation uh, around teaching English as a foreign language. Um, and she, she actually understood that most, for most kids, English was a, really a, was a foreign language and taught it appropriately. So she, um, uh, we recognized that innovation. We encouraged her to join a local network of teachers we created where she met with about 40 of her peers uh, in Delhi. Um, and through that encouragement, through that support, her peers encouraged her to, to spread her idea from her own classroom to about 100 classrooms in her local area. Um, 18 months later, she addressed a major education conference in Dubai, and in the front row were Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. And now as she's retiring for, you know, um, from the profession, she actually wants to set up a national project around teaching English much more effectively and influencing policy as well. That's a pretty an extreme example, but it can show what's possible just if you just change some, uh, you know, some of the, some of the mindsets around this and really just create that collaborative network of peers around teachers. Right, right. It's very interesting. And I like the idea of teachers as change makers in a sense as well. You mentioned the innovations that this teacher has come up with and so forth. How much of, you know, the improvement that, you know, one would hope for in education do you expect to come from, you know, new ideas, new ways of doing things or doing things, simple things well? How much innovation and new ideas are really necessary in education compared to other areas and what people might expect? Yeah, no, a really interesting question. I think we've learned a lot there. I think we came in thinking it was all about the innovation part. And actually what we've realized more and more is that what really matters more is about commitment and motivation as a professional in terms of being a teacher. And so I think what, we're really, what we've learned you know, over the last three and a half years is that what matters most is that a teacher, first of all, sees themselves as responsible for improving learning for kids. It seems a very simple thing to say, but uh, actually it just isn't, isn't there in many in many um, education systems. And, and secondly, that they really become what we call a re reflective practitioner. So they are able to see a problem in their classroom. A child who isn't learning, for example, they're able to put in place a solution. That solution can be you know, a radically new idea they come up with, or it can be something that's tried and tested, it doesn't really matter, but they they know how to identify the problem and learn and, and how to put in place an appropriate solution to that problem. And then um, are able to, to, to measure what happens, even if it's relatively anecdotally, and then reflect on what can be done better. And we call that kind of thinking process the learning improvement cycle. Um, it's, you know, a way of thinking that all professionals, I think, um, who are successful go through. And that's really the fundamental sort of mind shift we're trying to create among our teachers is that that ability to problem solve, put in place new things, measure how they're going, and, and just see what else needs to be done. And those new things can be, yeah, their own ideas, their own innovations. We call them micro-innovations. Or it could be something that's already tried and tested by research. It doesn't really make a huge difference. Very interesting. I'm fascinated by the whole question.
question, I guess, of these innovator networks and just generally in, you know, if you look at you know, change makers, social entrepreneurs, how well are they doing at taking, you know, new ideas, ideas that have been proven to work in particular domains and transfer them to, you know, where they work and to build on those. And often it seems as if more could be done there. There's not as much going on as one might hope for, you know, in terms of social entrepreneurs, you know, it's sharing best practice, I suppose. I just wonder, have you any thoughts on that? I mean, you mentioned that innovation is not the most important thing, but I suppose there is a, a transfer of best practice as well and, you know, cultivating a climate where people are, A, interested in, in, in you know, yeah. seeing what works and, B, you know, taking it on and so forth. And I suppose one of the things that I've observed is that, you know, social entrepreneurs, they, they work in specific domains, yeah. so their tendency were to look in that domain in the first place. But I just wonder whether there could be more done in terms of, you know, that people are working in Africa or India or yeah. different places on very similar problems, you know, or parts of the problem are, are structurally similar and have been solved in particular ways. Where is that information and what is the process by which, you know, that gets transferred and a knowledge base built? Yeah, and I think it's, it's a really, really, profound point. Uh, I think in, in, in two sentences, I think one is that that definitely is the case that, um, there are great, what we found even, even within a sector like education, where we first did our sort of landscaping and research by Instagram, uh, realized there were already lots of great innovations out there um, in terms of technical solutions to reading or to improving teacher training or to uh, new assessment tools, whatever, whatever you know, technology, whatever you want to uh, look at. But what, what no one was focusing on um, were a couple of areas. One was you know, I think if I use a gardening example, and I'm a very, very bad, bad gardener, um, you need, they need the soil to be fertile before you plant the right seeds. And I think so often innovation as social entrepreneurs, we, we focus on the seeds, the technical solutions. We don't ensure the climate is ready or the soil is fertile enough so those innovations can flourish and succeed. And so we see our job at Stern, the one at the first level, to create the right climate, to make that, that, that soil fertile by getting teachers motivated and excited and open to new ideas in the first place. That's the first part of what we're doing. The second part is we, we recognize that all these innovations are out there, but very few um, social entrepreneurs in education have managed to get those ideas into a format that's digestible to teachers. Um, and so we play that role of being the kind of translator and codifier. We try to take, take a, a new idea on technology or reading, for example, and say, how do you distill it down to its core parts and, and explain those high-level principles to a teacher in a low-income area who can adapt that, that, those principles to his or her context and innovate around them. So if that makes sense, one is sort of creating the right kind of soil and then helping those seeds to really go down right to the, the teacher level. Just on the second point there, what have you learned about this process? Because as you say, you know, there are cases out there, people doing lots of different things. How do you do that? I guess you, you know, identify, you know, potential innovations, but then, as you say, trying to, you know, structure it in such a way that, you know, you can present it to somebody and they can make sense of it and, and, and implement it in their own experience. Yeah, so, so let's take reading as an example. So we, we looked, um, we knew that our teachers had a huge issue around improving reading levels in their in their schools, and we also know that without good reading skills, it's almost impossible for a child to succeed in a school because they can't access the curriculum in the first place. So what we did is we, we worked with a great NGO called Muktanga in India. We looked at all of the, the research, the meta-studies on what, what improves reading effectiveness. 
And we distilled that, all of that, you know, thousands of pages of research into seven key principles. And just to give you one example, one thing that came from the research is that even a parent who themselves are illiterate can substantially help their child improve their reading levels uh, if they engage in the process and culture around reading at home. So we explain that principle to our teachers, give a couple of examples, and say, now you make that appropriate to your context. Go out, talk to your parents, see what they think on this, see what you can do. Share that with your peers and your network. Discuss what's happened and see what strategies are most successful around that principle. So it's, again, bringing evidence to teachers, but it's still giving them the autonomy and the impetus to create solutions around those principles and doing it in a way that's understandable and relatively simple uh, for someone on the ground to, to use and you know, practically. Right, right. And you see yourself as a social entrepreneur, or it's an interesting question, I guess, it's this terminology, and particularly in the sense of the financial side of things, whether how that plays out, do you get revenues, and, you know, to what extent is it an aspiration to be sustainable financially? Yeah, so right now we're, we're entirely grant-funded, so we've been lucky to have some, uh, 20 of the, of the World's Leading Foundation back our work uh, to date. Um, but um, the way we think about it really is that we really want to deeply embed our approach into systems, into government systems in particular. So we become part of the system. So we don't believe in building a parallel system. It's too expensive and it's also just you know, a waste of time in many ways. How do we strengthen the existing system uh, so we can reach millions of, of kids? And um, the way we work is we work, uh, we train people in government systems to run our approach. Uh, we sign deals with the state or national government uh, and then we work within it to train all the key the key officials in a, uh, in how you know how to run good networks, and we also build a supportive layer of senior officials around all this. And um, so what it means is, you know, we were able to tell our donors that every dollar they put into our costs is leveraging six public dollars of existing education spending, because we're able to work with existing teachers, train existing officials, use existing venues. Uh, so our cost per child is only about seven dollars uh, over three years, about two dollars, two or two or so dollars a year, to have the impact we we want to achieve. Um, so we think it's a pretty uh, good deal. We don't currently charge governments or systems directly, but we ask them to put a lot of in-kind support in. Over time, we'll also look to try to see if we can also directly charge almost a kind of consulting, uh, you know, some kind of consulting fees to to top partly recover some of those costs, but. We are a non-profit. What we're just trying to do is really have really create more of a sustainable income stream around it. But already because because of the leverage, donors find it quite attractive to to put money in because they they're able to piggyback off the government system. Right, very interesting. And um, you've raised money successfully from foundations. You say, have you some insights for others going down that path? Yeah, we've been lucky to raise actually over about um, thirty million dollars so far in funding from. Foundations, and I think really the key kind of insights are around. Um, I think first of all, the importance of getting finding a solution that can really be scaled. I think is really important nowadays. So, I think everyone, I think, is, is sort of tired of um, what I call pilot pilotitis, where you know we do small scale experiments on the sidelines, and irrespective of the results, there's no clear idea of how that will actually get mainstreamed or be part of a bigger solution. So, I think trying to go find that path to scale early on. Um, build very strong uh, 
relationships with, with, with foundations or funders and at a very personal and human level and we ask for a lot of advice along the way and really help them develop the thinking with you and co-create your sort of strategy with you along the way. And the third thing I think I'd just say probably the importance of a really strong impact measurement and just putting in time and, 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 and resources towards ensuring you've got the right systems to uh, to measure impact clearly and you have a clear sort of theory of change on how you want to, to measure impact in the first place. Right, right. Now, you've been three, I used to three and a half years involved in this with STIR since you set it up, and I know you've been involved in other non-profit and educational activities. What have been some of the lessons for you? <laughs> Maybe a few key insights on your journey. If we just take STIR, what has been, the, I guess, the, the most surprising things about your experience with building this up? Yeah, so I think, um, I'd say, I think, one thing, I think, more thinking about sort of external, well, just, um, I, I just um, came away really surprised in a positive sense by how many good people there are already in, 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 in systems uh, who you know, work very hard or dedicated to care a lot, but there's just nothing for them, no no recognition, no no no, no sort of, I don't even mean financial, but no even in, in intrinsic reward in what they do. If you can do just small amount of things to try to empower them, excite them, and, and, and help upskill them, amazing things can happen. So that's probably, probably the biggest insight on the sort of external side. And internally, kind of as a leader of an organization, I think just being very open about what things you're, you're strong at naturally, what things you are, are less strong at, and having that dialogue with your team, with your board, with your with your funders, and so on. And just being open to saying, look, I can't be excellent at everything. I'm going to try and fill people around me, um, find people around me with, with those uh those skills or capabilities that I lack personally and just the openness and transparency about that has been really refreshing because it just means you don't you stop playing games around you know um, appearances and actually just focus on achieving what you need to achieve as, a, as, as, as an organization. No, very interesting. Now I know you talk about the social capital of these networks which must build on itself over time. Are there early innovators more drawn to this at the beginning the more they you know, see the potential and then I guess others may take time and so forth. Do you think about that in terms of how you spread the word? Yeah, so, so I think we, we definitely sort of think about this idea of a tipping point and we, you know, what we're trying to do actually in systems is we're already currently in our, in our fourth year working with about 12,000 uh, teachers and about half a million kids. We want to get to about uh, 10 times that scale over the next five years, so about 120,000 teachers and four and a half million kids. And we really want to do that so we get to a critical tipping point where 10% of the teachers in a, in a given geography, a district or a state, are part of this movement for change. So we tip teaching overall. And we're finding that very happen very organically when, uh, you know, when we get that 10% tipping point, let's say in a given school, we find the school culture starts to gradually change because there are enough role models in that very local space who are challenging existing behavior and doing things differently. That can almost be infectious uh, as a result. And what we've been doing over the last year is learning from kind of religious you know, movements, other things around how do you convert people and giving the tools in that, ten, that initial 10% to very humbly go to the teacher next door and say, look, I'm trying something new in my classroom, a new innovation, why don't you try it with me and we can learn together. So almost, you know, enabling that first 10% to kind of um, involve the rest of their peers uh, at the very local level in their schools, in their districts. 
Yes, you call it micro-innovations, I guess, the innovator networks. Did you look into other arenas where there are similar successful examples of innovator networks? Yes, I think there's you know, lots of examples, I think, from, you know, sort of self-help groups and, you know, things like microfinance, even, you know, Sean's work on mental health. Um, uh, you know, that, that sort of model of peer support is, a, is, is, a, is an established one. And what's ironic, I think, is that um, if you look at some of the most successful school systems in the world now, look at, say, Singapore or Finland, uh, you know, uh, South Korea, that idea of teacher collaboration is actually very deeply embedded in how school, how education systems work. And there's a real sense, I think, of teachers as a real as real professionals, and they need to lift their profession up together. And kind of bureaucrats, officials, are people who are creating you know, the right structures around that, but it's really teachers themselves who lead their profession. But I think in most countries, uh, teaching has always been seen as a sort of semi-profession. Uh, and a lot, has a lot of meddling and other things going on. And I think it's never been given that that responsibility to lift its own standards up in a way that, say, surgery has or medicine has. And so in a way, we're trying to really just, just bring that back into teaching in, in developing countries. Right. And did I see somewhere the idea that there were kind of a levels that you reach within the network, as it were? It was a master network, three or four different right. levels. And what's the thinking behind that? Yes, we looked at you know, things like surgery, like medicine, so the way, where that happens, where you, know, you come in as a kind of apprentice and work your way through it. And we found there wasn't much like that in teaching, again, in, in emerging countries. So we wanted to build that. that and this is, um, so what happens is you come into STIR as, a, as, a, as an associate change maker, and you can go all the way up the distinguished fellow. And along those five rungs, you have to demonstrate very clear evidence of, of you actually improving your teaching improving learning levels for kids, but also being a role model to others and influencing the movement at the local or national levels. So they're increasingly kind of more demanding steps as you go through that. But as you become a fellow and distinguished fellow, you really start to play a very strong leadership role in, in spreading the movement in your local area. Um, so that's a really exciting part. We, we actually, we've actually been able to link that to academic recognition and certification. Uh, so teachers get academic kind of points for that. And also, really think in the future it might act as a very strong signal for career progression, really helping people are motivated to progress faster uh, in their system so they can make an even bigger impact. Yeah, so amazing. Uh, what has been the most difficult thing for you on this journey? Uh, I think just really the rate of growth has been pretty uh, um, sort of crazy. We expect it to grow quite so quickly. So just managing that, I think, and... Um, you know, we're on this kind, of, this kind of inflection point now where the model is more or less stable. Um, and we need to do a lot now to really make sure we deliver it with real quality and, and impact. And so I'd like to say no to many more things now. We, at the beginning, we were very adventurous and willing to try lots of experiments. Uh, we're at the stage now we need to consolidate and really um, focus now uh, on, on a few key areas and really show, um, you know, uh, strong impact. And so that, that, that sort of transition has been interesting. I think a lot of people have joined us initially, um, you know, who were really attracted by the very entrepreneurial part, now need to change behavior. That includes myself in many ways. So that's, that's, that's really interesting, kind of almost human change journey we're going through right now. Right, right. I guess the last question that would be interesting is the scaling question you talked about, you know, being very, very important. I'm wondering, where are you, Sharath, on that journey and, and what have you learned about scaling? Yes, I think, um, as I mentioned for Galeria, we're working with about 12,000 teachers, want to get to 120,000 over the next five years and get to a 
million teachers over over 10 years. And I think the key thing with scaling is how do, I think we've learned is, how do you find the right sort of channel for scale? And what is the right end game to look at? And I think uh, we're very clear, there is more a, it's more a method, a way of thinking, a way of approaching a problem rather than an organization at the heart. So at the, at the end game, uh, you know, the end state, we really think that a government could run this with some limited support from us. So it becomes really embedded into a system. We don't want to become, you know, an NGO with thousands of employees around the world. We want to stay, you know, in the hundreds of staff so we can stay quite lean and really work through systems and let them drive it. Um, so that's really the thinking, and that, that really requires us to do a lot of work around relationship building, knowledge transfer, codifying knowledge, um, being able to really distill what our approach is and isn't what are the core, you know, non-negotiables, but what also can be made flexible. So a lot of work needs to happen to kind of enable that kind of scaling ambition to happen in the future. I guess the one question that would rise is if these uh, government organizations and uh, structures in developing countries or in many countries have been part of the problem in their approach, their traditional ways, government changes, new ideas, we're going to do it this way, we're going to do it that way. What do you need to do to maintain the integrity of your approach? Yeah, a really, a really sort of practical example of, of what you're talking about goes, well, I was in a school in Utrecht recently and there was a a teacher we've been working with who had you know, managed after quite a few months of cajoling to shift his classroom behavior, he had much more interactive lessons, he'd moved his classroom around, the kids were sitting in, in circles where they could learn together as peers, and the district official came in, saw this, and shouted at him. And within a few minutes, literally, all of that work over you know, months was undone. And so what we've learned really strongly is we have to build the right enabling environment for this change to happen. If we just leave it to teachers, we're really in a way really exposing them because they need the high-level support of their their senior officials. So as well as building a teacher change-maker movement, we're also building a movement of what we're calling policy change-makers. These officials who whose consent and support is really critical to make this happen and, and be sustained. So all the things we're doing with teachers around recognition, training, professional development, building peer networks, we're trying to do with that, with that official layer as well. They're really excited by how that can really you know, create the momentum for change at different levels in a system. Right, right. Fascinating. Excellent. Well, Shah, that's been intriguing and interesting to hear the great work you're doing. And I just want to wish you the very best success with STIR over the next five and ten years and into the future. So thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with inspiring social entrepreneurs. No, thanks so much, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.